0: The Appalachian Mountains have a horror story. Weary travellers deep in the forest tell of the not-deer, named for the experience of encountering it. Driving late at night, people report seeing a creature in the road which appears, at first blush, to be a normal deer, silhouetted in the headlights. Then they notice something off about it. Perhaps it has a few too many joints in its legs, Or it moves with a sort of stuttering jerky unnaturalness like a body being manipulated by an unfamiliar entity perhaps its eyes face forwards like a predator rather than to the side like prey or perhaps they reflect the wrong color or perhaps perhaps its head splits open straight through to the neck revealing spiraled rows of sharp teeth as it moves towards the car with murder in its eyes But this isn't Appalachia. This is London. So why have reports of not deer started coming from the roads near Richmond Park? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. park has a native deer population, of course. I'm not from that part of the city, so I'll admit my first introduction to this fact was a 2011 video of a dog called Fenton chasing a herd of them clean across the park, while his owner chased behind screaming, Jesus Christ Fenton. They're there for much the same reason they're a deer in Epping Forest. Sure, they're a native species, but the herd has been maintained and managed for years by gamekeepers, traditionally for hunting by London's gentry. Nowadays, they're culled by those same keepers, rather than for sport, to keep the numbers at a sustainable level so they don't decimate the other wildlife. Ultimately, they're prey without predators. Apart from us, that is. Richmond Park, obviously, isn't much like rural Appalachia. Although there are some fairly densely forested sections, it's still a tightly maintained royal park, firmly within the Greater London Conurbation, surrounded on all sides by the mess and sprawl of former towns like Wimbledon and Kingston. It's also directly north of New Malden, the part of London famous for having the largest Korean population in Europe, and a really excellent bingsu place on the high street, I recommend. Any park manager will tell you that, for wildlife, being in an urban environment produces marked changes to their behaviour. Obviously, there are the side effects of gradual domestication, which in a lot of creatures result in an increased comfort around people, as well as foraging in bins and begging for food. That's how it tends to go for squirrels, birds and other critters with the ability to run and hide from threats. They learn the city's bolt holes and carve out lives for themselves amongst them. Larger animals, though, gain a type of intelligence from being around people the sixth sense for danger, and the ability to predict and react to behaviours that maybe we didn't anticipate. Anyone who's encountered London's fox population will attest to this. They possess a type of quick-witted cunning which is almost impossibly charming, even if you catch them overturning your bin at 3am. A London fox will look you straight in the soul, evaluate you, and decide immediately if you're worth taking seriously. I hesitate to say it, but I have never in my life been taken seriously by a fox. What does this have to do with the knot, deer Well, first, let me rule some things out. When I started writing this episode, I thought I'd approach it from what seemed like the most obvious angle – invasive non-native species. That's the parks management term for plants and animals brought in from other countries Which have found their way to the uk from different parts of the world and flourished to the unfortunate detriment of local species japanese knotweed for example is a fast growing weed that was introduced to the uk as an ornamental plant in the late 1840s but has now spread all over the country due to its deep and hardy root system making it near impossible to kill that same root system is strong enough to break through the foundations of buildings making them structurally unsound and as a result, there are large-scale programs all over the place to eliminate it. Predictably, given the massive government funding cuts for parks, these efforts are mostly failing. I started out researching along similar lines around the not-deer. The trouble is that deer are a native species in the UK, and an abundant one at that. They're classified as least-concerned species by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the governing body that monitors population levels of all species and grades them as endangered or otherwise. While there are still cases of people smuggling in new creatures for recreational purposes, like in the heyday of freewheeling Victorian habitat jazz, these days most invasive non-native species end up in the country by accident, when someone imports from an unscrupulous supplier and they end up with a hitchhiker. I say all that to say this, nobody is importing deer to the UK. Even if they did, there's no way something like a not-deer would sneak through customs hidden in a crate of bananas or on the underside of a leaf. It's just not possible. If the not-deer aren't an INNS in the UK, and all my research into the topic suggests that's the case, where the hell did they come from? Here's the thing about Appalachian Knot Deer, it's a relatively recent phenomena. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of horror stories about the woods in that part of the world, and the further you go back into American history, the more you find tales of things out in the trees. The long shadows cast by all lanterns carried by tired miners will do that to a place. Strange beasts and witchcraft go hand in hand with dense forests and lonely mountains, not to mention moonshine and opium. Stories of the not-deer only really started to take root in the late 80s and early 90s, though. Prior to that, you just don't hear about it at all. What changed? You've probably heard the term redneck before, usually used to refer derisively to rural working-class folks in the American South. That's not its complete history, though. The term gained a lot of popularity in Appalachia in the 1920s and 30s to refer to unionised workers in the coal mining industries of those regions, who'd wear red bandanas to indicate solidarity during strikes. It's an area with a proud history of left activism, which has largely been forgotten as the industries closed and America transferred over to an economy based on… whatever the hell it's based on these days. War bonds and money laundering? I think that's most of it. The rednecks were a community they stood in solidarity against exploitation working together to build a better world for all of them in return all the forces of capital arrayed against them in a multi-front explosion of violence in 1921 the us army worked closely with the baldwin felt's detective agency and west virginia mine owners to orchestrate the murder of around a 100 union activists along with the arrest and torture of almost a thousand others an event now known as the Battle of Blair Mountain. This massacre, conducted with the full support of the police and government, caused a drop-off in union membership in the area for another 10 years. Sometimes I think i felt defeat, but it's important to look back at our history and be reminded of how bad things can get. Blair Mountain didn't kill the unions for good, though. FDR and the New Deal led to a huge resurgence in union activism. Meanwhile, in the UK, similar left organising was radically reshaping society for the better. The success of the Soviet Union and the fear it inspired among the forces of capital eventually led to the creation of the NHS alongside a raft of other policies which helped dissipate revolutionary energy with genuine improvements to living standards. Massive amounts of social housing were built, and the post-war election of left liberal governments resulted in sick pay, parental leave, and holiday time being built into labor laws. Don't get me wrong, it's important not to mistake the concessions of capitalism in crisis for genuine worker power, but it sure did uplift a lot of people out of crushing poverty and into what we would now recognize as the middle class. What happened to that momentum? Well, in the 80s, The USSR was gradually dismantled by a small group of right radicals at the centre of their government, in a series of market liberalisation decisions which eroded the solidarity of the world's most successful communist state. When the levies finally broke and the USSR formally dissolved in 1991, it led to the single greatest reduction in living conditions ever experienced by a population outside of wartime. The six-year drop in life expectancy for people in former Soviet states in the 90s is actually greater than the drop in life expectancy in the UK during World War II. It was a world historic disaster. America installed puppet governments all across Europe, sent over their most vicious and evil economists, and strip-mined the public services of these countries as a victory lap. Whole regions have never recovered. I'm not enough of a Soviet historian to be able to relitigate this period, and this wouldn't be the right place to do it in any event, but it's easy to see the catastrophic effect it had on the rest of the world. The poles of Western politics shifted drastically rightwards and resettled in the current imagination-bereft decaying liberalism we find ourselves in today. Every major left victory in Europe and America relied on the threat of communism escaping containment if we weren't sufficiently appeased with universal healthcare or social housing or a public welfare system. The moment this threat rescinded, capitalism crawled back out of the cracks, selling off utilities and transportation and public spaces and natural resources and medicine and intellectual property and a little bit of peace and solidarity which lives behind the eyes of everyone who isn't luxuriating in the blood of the worker union membership already down as a result of the vicious union busting of the 80s cratered in this period and the center-right politics of people like clinton and blair accelerated neoliberalism by making the population complicit in the imperial violence against the middle east and former soviet states rather than attempting to reframe and revitalize left internationalism so outdated so gauche They argued for the middle class of each country to get a slightly larger portion of the table scraps of what was being stolen globally. It didn't work. Obviously. Look around you. The oceans are boiling, the world is at war, and conditions have only gotten worse and worse. There are no rednecks anymore. There are no miners' strikes. Our unions are defanged to the extreme, with very few exceptions. Everyone knows it. Things are getting worse and they're accelerating. People are aware. People in Appalachia are aware, as are people in Richmond. But without the productive outlet of left organizing, there's no pressure valve for that feeling. So where does all that energy go? Directionless anger and a sort of grasping spite has become the default mood for the stamped on populations of these formerly successful areas. Southwest London and West Virginia actually have that in common. There's an overwhelming feeling that there used to be money here, a feeling of loss redirected through TV and persnickety Facebook groups into a furious white-hot rage at the idea that things didn't have to be this way. I'm writing this in the middle of the most aggressive heatwave the UK has ever seen. A heatwave directly attributable to climate change that will, without a doubt, kill people. And the reaction of much of our populace is that we should stop complaining and that heat is good, actually. There's an entirely new emergent pathology to this type of thinking. One which takes great offense to anyone suggesting the world could be better, that perhaps we could improve things slightly. No, the world must be worse. And the young must suffer more, and that suffering is good, actually. And complaining or acknowledging this is being a spoiled, soft snowflake. An immense well of disaffected suburban anger has swallowed up the human subconscious across Britain and America. Is there any wonder the world is reacting to that? Deer are prey animals. But anyone who's been around deer will tell you that they can be tough bastards when they're cornered. I've seen what happens when a car hits a deer on the road, and you'd be surprised how often the car comes out much worse for it. Deer are also sensitive creatures, another side effect of being prey. They react to minuscule changes in the atmosphere, to forces we can hardly perceive. Studies have shown that deer adjust to the presence of humans in a way which can anticipate our moods, feel us coming, and react as a herd. Forest rangers in the home counties have said that they could tell when an illegal rave was coming because, for weeks before, deer would start avoiding the planned site en masse, even if nobody from the event itself had actually visited. Deer react to the ley lines of human desire, in ways we barely understand, not as individuals, but as a herd. There's a collective subconscious through which humans and deer seem to be linked, as more than just predator and prey. Taken together, they're a natural processor, even to the point of choosing weak or dangerous members of the herd to be conveniently separated when a hunter is coming. They comprehend and react to human desires, behaviors, And resentments. They don't just react, they change. There's a latent anger in the British suburbs. It's everywhere. There's a ferociousness within our culture, devouring and rampant, bubbling up in frustrated comfort and warped by spite into directionless outkicking. How dare you live here? How dare you ask for more. How dare you expect better. Not in my day. Not in my time. The distrust which killed the rednecks is warping the world and all its creatures to its vicious will. A herd of deer, the great biological CPU, with its tendrils in the human subconscious, is changing alongside it. If you're walking through Richmond late at night, And you feel that burning sensation of a pair of eyes on you. Start running. You may have just become prey. Episode of Subterraneans, a typeface in the river, and the cursed words that got it there. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind the scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. I'm also selling stickers promoting the show. You can find the details on my Twitter. They're one pound a piece, and they're really, really cool. Thanks to Isaac for research help on this episode. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex. They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair.